Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about foster, adoptive, and kinship care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the host of this show, as well as the director of the nonprofit, creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking with a panel of adult transracial adoptees. They are the real experts on adoption, and we're going to ask them to teach us about adoption. We will be speaking today with Nason Faust. He is biracial, black, white, and was adopted as an infant by white parents in an open adoptions in the northwestern part of the U.S. We also have Rosie Jones. She is a transracial adoptee born in China and adopted by white parents in the U.S. And she wrote a wonderful guest article for the creatingafamily.org called Home is Where, sharing her search for identity. I strongly recommend everyone. We will link to it in the show notes here. And we will be speaking with Jessica Luciri. She is a transracial adoptee born in Bogota, Colombia, raised by white parents in Long Island, New York. She works as an adoptee advocate, creating supportive spaces and adoptees for their families. And she works with the Spence Chapin Adoption Agency. So welcome, Rosie, Nathan, and Jessica. So glad to have you guys here. First of all, let me just say, we are speaking about transracial adoption. And I, I always feel the need to say that, yes, that includes white parents adopting black, biracial, Asian, and Latinx children. But it also includes adoptive parents of color who adopt white children. And so many of the issues are the same. So with that disclaimer, let me jump in. I think it would help to begin with just to ground us in who you guys are. Let's start with Nathan. Can you tell us your adoption story? Uh, how old, I already said you were adopted as an infant, but still, how old and what your connections are in relations with your birth family as well? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Don. So my name is Nathan Faust. I was adopted at three days old, I believe. And my birth parents met in college as college students. They weren't ready to take care of a child. And so they reached out to the agency Open Adoption Family Services on whose board I sit now, which is a very full circle moment for me. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. My birth mom met my parents when I was about maybe six months, six months along. And so they formed a fantastic connection. My parents, they were living in Portland at the time. My birth mother was living in Salem, Oregon at the time, so only about an hour down the road. And when I was born, my adoptive mother, she was there in the room as well. And I was taken home after three days. And so over the past roughly, well, from zero to 18 as I was growing up, I had my birth mother down the road. And my birth father moved to Australia when I was eight years old. And so it was interesting having my birth family there as well. And really, my connection with adoption, I do work with the board on Open Adoption Family Services. I'm currently creating a collection of adoption-related poetry for a creative grant at Loyola Marymount University as well. And I really speak as an advocate for adoption to prospective parents, adoptees as well. Okay. Rosie, can you tell us your adoption story and if you have any contact with birth family? Yeah. So I was adopted from China in August 2001, and I was back 16 months old. I was adopted by two white parents, my father and my mother, and my half-sister, who is nine years older than me. And just because of a lot of systemic and systematic things I don't know my first family, which is very common for people who are adopted from China. Yes, by far the majority. Yes, yes. And so if you do know somebody from China who knows their birth family, they probably did a birth family search. Mm -hmm. So yes, but my little sister was adopted from China a couple years after me. We're not related biologically. So that was cool because I actually went with them. So I got to see the adoption family perspective from a personal standpoint and then also from my sisters like being part of the adopting family as well mm -hmm. so then i grew up in a pretty um, rural white area in maryland and grew up pretty colorblind in that kind of family situation but i did grow up knowing a lot of the children who were adopted with me and like my gotcha day group so I was surrounded by a lot of Asian American adoptees. And then when I went to college, I got super interested in race, culture, language, all the things that I didn't really have access to. Well, I won't say I didn't have access. I wasn't interested in knowing about growing mm -hmm. up. And so actually I got connected with 
this organization when I wrote my senior thesis on Chinese American adoption. And then I wrote a little side piece for creating a family. Yeah. And again, it was focusing on searching for identity as a transracial adoptee. And we will talk some about that. Jessica, fill us in on your adoption story, as well as your connections to birth family and the diversity of the area you grew up and things such as that. Sure. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you for having me. So my name is Jessica Lucieri, and I am a transracially adopted person. I was born in Colombia, in Bogota, Colombia, and I grew up on Long Island in New York. I was adopted by two white parents, uh, Italian-American, and I grew up in a neighborhood with not much diversity at all. And, and growing up as an only child, I can't say that I was necessarily looking for myself too much within where I grew up, because I don't think that I, as much as I knew that there were differences and I knew that I was somebody who came from somewhere else, as a young person, I think I was really just, you know, my friends were my friends, my family was my family. And as mm -hmm. much as I was, again, proud to be a Colombian adopted person, because my parents had always kind of shared pieces of my culture with me and they had always been very open and honest with me about where I was born and my story from a very young age. Even so, I don't think as a young person, I was really too interested in looking for community or looking for people who look like me. I definitely experienced a lot of <laughs> situations being out with two white parents as a, as a little brown girl with big curly hair. You know, people speaking Spanish to me or, you know, kind of looking at me with concern when they don't see people who look like me. So it was in those moments that I definitely was aware that there were differences that I had that my friends may not have had who were biologically connected to their families. But growing up on Long Island, uh, I had really great experiences with friends. I did not experience that much othering in certain circumstances I did. But looking back on them now, I can see that they were more just people not really understanding what it was like to have an adoptive person in front of you. And then, as Rosie had mentioned, you know, got to college and kind of experienced a sense of culture shock, seeing a lot of people who look like me and started to really find interest in finding my place within groups of people who look like me because I wasn't immediately accepted by those who I shared culture, race, or birth language with. And it became not something that I did just to feel like I wanted to fit in, but it was something that was important to me because I hadn't experienced my culture, my birth language or birthplace before that. As open as my parents were with me, they didn't bring Colombian culture home to me. I don't think that they really understood or knew at the time that that was an important thing to do. Mm -hmm. So as I got older and spent some years in college and even beforehand, I found my community. I found other people who, again, shared the same race or culture with me, but also other adopted people. And through that connection with other adopted people, I became part of a huge network of specifically Colombian adopted people all throughout the world. And then that kind of also led me into the work that I'm now doing as a mentor and working in post-adoption services, creating spaces for adoptees and their family through the organization that I work with, but also in other different arenas within New York and the country. Being able to provide those services and spaces for people to grow and learn from one another has been really important for me because I didn't have that growing up. And just as you know, it was mentioned before, where I was a part of a group that was really more focused on my parents having community, I knew other kids who were adopted too because my parents had you know adopted in Colombia and their families had also. But as much as I had that group of people growing up, I can't say that I really connected with them so much on anything adoption related. Mm -hmm. I am in reunion and I've been in reunion for almost 18 years now. So I went from being an only child to the second oldest of six that I know of. I reunited with my birth mother's side of the family and have spent countless months of traveling back and forth to Colombia, learning my language, connecting with immediate birth family and external birth family. And it's a roller coaster of experience being in reunion for so many years. We will come back to that because I think that deserves some specific time to talk. You and Nathan have different reunion experiences. Hey guys, have you subscribed yet to our free monthly newsletter? You can do so if you go to bit.ly slash transracial guide today. The reason that is your URL is because 
If you subscribe today, you will be getting a new, wonderful, downloadable guide called Strengthening and Supporting Your Transracial Adoptee, directly on point for the topics of today's show. Again, go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash transracial guide, all one word. Let me start with a more general question. And Rosie, I'll start with you just to mix things up. How did your parents treat adoption and how did and and does that make you feel about being adopted? How was adoption treated in your family? Yeah, adoption has always been something that was pretty normal in our household, you know, especially because me and my younger sister were both adopted and we're both Chinese and my parents are both white. So it was never something that you could hide or cover up, Um, you know. So instead of hearing birth stories, we grew up with photo books of like, oh, here's photos of when we were in Beijing and then we flew to like Guangdong and that's where we met you. You know, like I grew up with all those stories Mm -hmm. and like family myth making, Mm -hmm. for lack of better terminology. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like we had scrapbooks because my mom is a scrapbooker and then we also had a lot of books written by other adoptive parents and they were never really exactly the same as ours you know because international adoption there is so different from country to country but like it still exposed us to a lot of adoption stories and so honestly like I grew up feeling very comfortable being an adoptee you know and I'm really lucky for that but like I have been in a really great situation and I have a great relationship with my parents and I'm very comfortable talking about my adoption with them. And they were, it sounds like as well. Nathan, how was adoption treated? Are you the only adopted person in your family or do you have siblings who are also adopted? And how was adoption treated in your family? Absolutely. So both my parents are white and I'm half black, half white, but generally present black. So they couldn't really hide it from me. So I'm also the, I'm the only child through my parents, through my birth family. I have two younger half brothers and one older half sister, but we didn't grow up together ages far apart, stuff along those lines. So I consider myself as an only child growing up. And so my parents treat adoption incredibly, incredibly normally because my birth family was roughly an hour down the road. They also wouldn't exclude them from my life, of course. And so truthfully, it wasn't until I was about seven that I realized that other people didn't have a second set of parents, that other people didn't also have birth parents. I remember having that conversation with my mom because my best friend looked exactly like his mom, like blue eyes, blonde hair, everything. And I just thought, wow, it's strange they look similar, right? And my mom then had to have a conversation about how genetics work. So adoption was always treated with a lot of respect. There was always space in my life for my birth family as well. And I give my parents a lot of credit for that, especially because as a kid, I'm sure there were challenges that I don't know about today and definitely didn't know about back then. Mm -hmm. So how this made me feel about being adopted overall, I would say is I felt special. I felt prioritized in a sense, but more than anything else, I guess I felt chosen Mm. in a way where my parents picked me in that case. Mm -hmm. And did that put additional pressure on you? Because that's not a uncommon narrative, perhaps a little less now than it used to be. But part of the issue is that if you're chosen, you could be unchosen, or that's one of the concerns, or that it puts undue pressure on the child. Did you feel any of that? I didn't feel any undue pressure in any capacity that I didn't put on myself. There were, well, truthfully, at this time, I'm 26 now, and it's only recently that I've begun really seeing that my actions that I take in life are mine alone and that I don't really owe anything to anyone, that like I have a life that I love, I have parents who I love, and a lot of people have sacrificed for that. And it's only really recently that I began starting to think through, okay, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. If I don't quote unquote succeed or live up to any expectation, does that reflect poorly on them? Is it not worth it? What I think really stood out to me a lot is that from all sides from my parents has been the consistent narrative of you don't owe us anything. Mm -hmm. This is your life and we want you to live it. And as long as you're being true to yourself, that's all you need to be. And so I truly do appreciate that message. Yeah, I can, I can say that. Okay, Jessica, for you, how did your parents treat adoption? Were you treated as the chosen one or how did your parents treat adoption? And how did that influence how you feel about adoption? Well, adoption was really woven into 
quote unquote normalcy. You know, that we had books on the shelf ever since I was little. I came off the plane and somebody handed my parents a book. Well, it was a family member, it wasn't just a stranger. <laughs> hanging out at the airport, hanging there. Yeah, right. Just waiting. <laughs> but he handed them a book called Why Was I Adopted? And that became, you know, normal reading for us, woven into the many other books that we would read. And I think it was a really great way of showing how families can look differently, but still be a family. And so it created this kind of sense of, you know, it's not this completely, you know, unheard of situation to not look like your family. And, you know, my parents indulged me. They answered questions when I had them. They were very open and honest with me from a very young age to say, if you were ever interested in learning more or maybe one day finding them, we're here to support you. We're here to give you the space that you need if you want us there, if you want us So they gave you full permission that they weren't going to be challenged by that. Okay. Totally. I mean, you know, I I think there has to be, and I applaud them for this, you know, as, as parents in the 80s, in the early 80s, who were adopting a child from a foreign country, I think there was an understanding that there is always going to still be a connection to biology and to, bio, and to biological family and to that interest of knowing where you came from and who you look like. And so with that kind of being the undertone, I think they always made space for those questions. They always made space for that part of my life. They may not be able to answer all the questions for, but offer support, even in not knowing how uncharted those waters may be one day. Mm -hmm. But I was very proud of being a Colombian person. I was very proud of being somebody from somewhere else. And I think it made my story very interesting when I was able to share it with people. And, you know, I had a lot of support from my parents. And I can't say that I felt chosen or even more special as an only child. I think I was just, I felt like I was their kid. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that again, that they indulged me in all of the differences that I Mm -hmm. presented that were not a reflection of who they were as people. How did they treat race? Now, we've talked about how they treated adoption, but how did they treat race and specifically your race and your race being different from theirs? We didn't really talk about race. It wasn't something that came up, I think, especially in childhood and early adolescence. I didn't think it was something that I was necessarily focused on. I was you know, I was a young person who was just <laughs> interested in being friends with my friends and not really thinking too too deeply into it. These are different times that we're in now. Mm. And I know kids are thinking about these things a lot earlier than I probably was. But, you know, of course, I would make reference to the fact that I have like darker skin than my parents and my dad would just kind of be like, well, you know, he's like, he's Italian. So he'd be like, oh, you know, in the summer, we'll look more alike because he would get a tan. <laughs> it was those kinds of overarching, very like, you know, it doesn't make a difference how you look. It's more that we are a family. And I can say at some point, I definitely wish that they had incorporated some more conversations about culture and race into our family. My parents are both gone now, but I can't imagine what having these conversations would have been like and how we could have reflected back on my childhood a little bit more differently had those conversations have been had. Mm-hmm. Nathan, what about you? How did your parents treat race in general and your race in specific? So growing up in Portland, I believe at this time, Portland's grown more and more diverse as the years have gone by. But growing up in the state, it's commonly known as one of the whitest cities in America. And so I believe it's over 70% white right now. There's consistently been less than a single digit African-American population. And due to the history of the state, the African-American population of Portland has been gathered generally into one rough area. And so race was interesting for me because growing up in Portland, not living in said area, it was still a space where I felt welcomed and where I felt accepted as an individual and as my own person, which is what I really appreciated about the city. But I believe that there were going to be aspects of race that my parents weren't going to be able to teach me. They gave me a phenomenal life, but they don't know what it means to be a black man in a major city, especially like a black man in a major city, which is predominantly a different race. And so race was always given the utmost respect and given the most seriousness. It was never hidden from me about my race, what it means after Trayvon Martin was murdered. My mom had a long conversation with me about keeping my hood down whenever I like wear my sweatshirt out and stuff along those Mm -hmm. lines as well. Although 
when it came to it and growing up, I defined a lot of things myself, whether that came from looking for mentors or turning to media and culture, which can be misleading a lot of the time and figuring out for myself what it means to be a black man, mm-hmm. especially a black man in America. Mm-hmm. And I believe that my parents did a phenomenal job, especially showing me the importance of race in the world and significance of who I am. But at the same time, there were going to be some lessons that they weren't going to be able to teach. But thankfully, mm-hmm. they understood that as well and helped me look for mentors and find people when I was growing up. You said your birth mom lived relatively close and your birth dad did not. Is your birth mom black or white? My birth mother is white. My birth father's black. And so your birth father was not so much a part of your growing up because he was living across the world? So he wasn't in a situation to meet me until I was around eight years old. And then around that time, he met the love of his life and moved to Australia. So we weren't able to have a lot of like physical time and connection together. But thankfully, to the advent of technology, we talk all the time now. And we are able to have that relationship, even if we only see each other in person, maybe every couple of years or so. Gotcha. Okay. Rosie, let's talk about race and how that was handled in your family growing up. Yeah. So it sounds like me and Jessica might have had somewhat similar situations where we just like didn't talk about race, but it wasn't so much like my parents were avoiding it. It just didn't come up that often, you know, like my parents grew up with white families. (laughs) We lived in a pretty white area and like you don't meet that many white people who are walking up to other white people and they're like, hey, what's up? You're white. I'm white. Like, We know. Everybody knows. So the same situation was with our family where like people weren't coming up to us and being like, you're Asian and your mom's white. And like, that's weird. Like, it was just like something people kind of just like saw and then like looked the other way. And my parents were kind of like, okay, that happens. But like, they definitely emphasize the fact that it doesn't matter how you look, but that we're still a family. But I would say that for me, race and culture kind of go side by side. And they're not the same thing. But I feel like when I bring up my race, I also have to bring up my culture. So I grew up in a moderately colorblind home, but my parents did try to introduce a lot of Chinese culture to me growing up, especially the adoption agencies in the early 2000s were really like, really pushing for parents to like, send their kids to Chinese culture camps and Mm -hmm, like... Chinese adoption picnics and, and learn how to use chopsticks and, right. and speak Chinese and all these things. Like, so my parents definitely opened up opportunities for me to do that. Like we connected with other adoptees in the area who weren't the ones I knew, you know, just like local organizations. Mm-hmm. They introduced me to Chinese. They introduced me to different culture classes. Mm-hmm. But because it wasn't super organic, it like never really stuck with me. You know, like mm-hmm. if people around me aren't speaking Chinese, then it kind of felt weird to me to like be speaking Chinese. Right. So yeah. Gotcha. Jessica, you mentioned that your your family, I think you said your family had a fairly colorblind approach. Would you recommend that colorblind approach for other parents now? Or do you feel like taking a colorblind approach when you're adopting a child of a different race, especially in the United States, is colorblind not the best approach? No, absolutely not. And I wouldn't say that my family was necessarily colorblind. I think that it was just it was recognized, it just wasn't talked about as much. Mm -hmm. You know, there was an understanding that I was somebody who came from a different part of the world and had a different birth, race, and culture and language. But I don't think that they had necessarily all the tools or the wherewithal to understand that bringing that identity back to me would be important or incorporating it into our family. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely think that it's important for families to be aware of the importance of identity especially when we have people who are adopting from very culturally rich countries. You know, my advice to parents that I give all the time, people who are adopting is to incorporate that identity, that culture into your family before you bring your child home. That way they grow up knowing that you have taken on part of their identity as much as they're incorporating your identity into who they are. I think it helps to make a much more well-rounded experience for everyone. There's a connectedness that happens when there's an understanding that one day can come where they have questions and why not have some of those answers and say, hey, here's some answers. Here's what I can show you. Let's go find the rest together. You know, And, and I think laying that foundation and that groundwork 
of, again, that understanding and that appreciation really helps for that to create stronger families and stronger bonds and a a stronger connection from the child to the parent. Mm -hmm. Yes, I see that. I want to tell you about Creating a Family's interactive training support curriculum for foster, adoptive, and kinship families. If you are running a support group, I cannot think of a better resource. If you are running trainings for foster, adoptive, or kinship families, I cannot think of a better resource. It's a video-based curriculum, but there is lots of participation. There's lots of pauses for discussion because that's really where people learn. So you can check it out by going to our website, creatingafamily.org, hovering over the word training, and then clicking on support group curriculum. Okay, Nathan, I, I want to shift now to talking about racial identity. Was it a struggle for you to identify as a black man when you became a man? Let's start actually by talking about the college experience, because I do think that's commonly not a challenge. It's, it's potentially a challenge, but it's certainly an area of growth for many transracial adoptees. We always say that no matter where you live, you run in the same circle. So after a very short time, you as a transracial adopted person, you no longer stand out. We talk about conspicuous families and you do when you go outside somewhere new, but when you're running in your same circles, going to the same grocery store, going to the library, same school, whatever, you become old news. And so you're not, you're under the umbrella of your parents' identity. And one of the first times, not the only time, but for many people, often the first time is when they go to college. So let's start with that. So Nathan, when you went to college, did you struggle with knowing where you fit in. Did you fit in with the black kids? Did you fit in with the white kids? Did you fit in with the biracial kids? Was it a struggle for you at all? What I would say more so is it's honestly, it was closer to a culmination of my whole experience coming into college. College was the first time where I had a physical separation from Portland overall. And I remember coming to Los Angeles, which is one of the most diverse places in the country, and just literally walking down the street and be like, oh, okay, this is what diversity looks like. This is what it's like when you have many different people from many different backgrounds living together, and all those cultures are blending together. But so I believe that I was in a particularly unique situation when it came to learning about my identity itself. I referenced Trayvon Martin being killed earlier. That happened when I was 15 or 16 years old. About the same age as Trayvon when he was killed, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so growing up in that space, especially in terms of white black relationship in America, I didn't have the opportunity to wait until college until I got to assess what it meant to be a black man. A lot of that was put on me very early and especially growing up in an environment that had not a lot of diversity in it. Mm -hmm. Then I often found myself being the quote unquote, like speaker for my race in certain situations. And so I think what was curious about that is that as I'm growing up, like I grew something like a foot from like 13 to 14, I grew a foot. And so suddenly I'm no longer like, okay, I'm a kid. It's, this is a man. This is a person who presents as a man. Mm -hmm. And now I'm in high school and now I'm a black man in America learning what that means as I go forward. And so I think a lot of what was formed for me in high school was centered around my identity in terms of learning when to speak. When am I talking for myself? When is it my responsibility to speak up? And so when I got to college, I think having that disconnect, because as you said, Don, people don't have the cultural context of, or the situational or city context of, oh, I know your parents. So I have this. And so I was now a black man in Los Angeles. And I would say that introduced new struggles into my experience, which was, okay, this is a much larger black community in Los Angeles than there is in Portland, both in terms of percentages and numbers. What does this mean now? Now, where do I fit? And Mm -hmm. so I wouldn't say it was a reassessment of my identity per se. What I would say is a reassessment of my position and the responsibility that came with being myself. So I believe that as I've grown and developed and stepped further into my identity, there's a balance there which is between what it means to be a black man in America, but also what does it mean to be Nathan Faust? And Mm -hmm. parts of that come down to, I'm a creative writing master's student right now. Is that a black thing to do? That's not my decision. That's not anyone else's decision. It's what I'm doing and Mm -hmm. I'm black. 
Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, after George Floyd was murdered, people were reaching out to me to see if I was okay. And at that point, I was a black man mm-hmm. and also a friend in that case for them and being mm-hmm. there and being in community. And I remember going to a protest in West Hollywood, I think, and I walked into a room and there's another black man there who had met like a couple times before, but we saw each other and it was me just like connection. And that was something that's deeper than just like, oh, this is my name. This is what I look like. It's this is more so about my experience. And so I think a large part, especially after I went to college, was really figuring out the divide between what it means to be a member of a community versus what it means to be myself in any situation. Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. When you moved to Los Angeles, did you feel automatic acceptance in a part of the black community? Or did you face questions of why does he talk white? Or he doesn't seem like the rest of us? Or did you face any of that? Truthfully, I didn't really when it came down to it. I think maybe it's because I came in from like a university perspective and then I also didn't have a car in LA. So I didn't really, you know, go very many places. You were were primarily on campus is what you're saying. Yeah, on campus, primarily in the area, like West Side, Los Angeles, going to the beach and stuff like that, too. And I think that university provides such an interesting experience and aspect, too, because what you're going to find is there's not going to be a monolith of one community that's only, hey, if you're like this, this is the only way to be. I think that was one of my larger fears coming in, that if I didn't speak a certain way or know certain things, then I wasn't going to be accepted as myself. But Mm -hmm. really, when it came down to it, I found it was much further from the truth. Oh, that's reassuring. It really was. that In that setting, I wasn't even like in times where I've been challenged for like standing out for any particular reason. It's not because you're black and you're standing out. It's because you're doing something differently. Yeah. The, and I'm blanking on his name, the Central Park incident that happened, I believe, in 2020, where the guy was walking in Central Park, and he was a bird watcher, and he was black, and the white woman called the police and said he was threatening her when he was asking her to put her dog on a leash in a, a place that dogs were required to be on the leash. He has just written a book, and it's fascinating. He talks a lot about the fact that, you know, as a bird watcher, you know, is is bird watching a black thing to do, and how it ultimately had to think that I don't care. It's 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 my thing to do. I'm interested in it. I want to do it anyway. It's a great book, Rosie. Let's talk about college for you and your racial identity formation, and how college played, and then after college. Yeah. So, like I said, I didn't grow up with a lot of conversation about race in my home. And we definitely in middle school and high school, we had plenty of conversations where we were all poking fun at each other's race, but nobody was ever taking anybody's race seriously and having like those good conversations. So I actually, I went to a predominantly white Christian college in Pennsylvania. The racial divide is 18% students of color. And when I walked on that campus, I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) this is the world. Like, it is so diverse here. It's crazy. I called my mom and I was like, where am I? I don't know. (laughs) Um, And then by the time I was a senior, I was like, yo, I got to see more parts of the world than this. (laughs) If this is diverse, Um, I clearly need some more. Honestly, honestly. But yeah, like I definitely had that color shock when I went onto campus. And so for me, Understanding my racial identity was moderately hard because there wasn't a lot of people I knew who were talking about Asian American identity at that time. So by the time I went to college in 2018, a lot of my knowledge of race was based on the Black Lives Matter movement, which on one hand is like good in that they're doing good work and they're people of color and I'm a person of color. But their lived experience is so different from mine Mm -hmm. that like it definitely feels like I started hopping different people's identities and like trying to fit them on like a hat and then realized, oh, this isn't the right one. And so then I would switch hats, you know? So I would bounce from like trying to understand the Asian American identity from like a black perspective. And obviously I'm not black, so that didn't work. The biracial experience, which kind of fit, but also I'm not biracial. So it kind of didn't like where I was going to college, there were a lot of military kids and missionary kids. And I was like, oh, I kind of fit the transcultural, intercultural sort of thing. And then I was like, no, I don't. I don't at all. (laughs) So it was definitely 
a very odd time period for anybody who knew me in college, like bless their soul if they're still friends with me, because <laughs> I was going through some major identity shifts. But I ended up being an English major in college, creative writing. And so I did a lot of free writing. And then we were doing a lot of literary analysis and focusing a lot on the intersectional parts about gender and race and other things like that. And that's where I really got to dive into who I am and kind of find other people who were my race and going through my experience. And unlike a lot of other people who I think know a lot of people, which I do now, at first, when I was really working through my racial identity, I found a lot of my role models and my mirrors in literary figures and in authors and books. So Interesting. I hope to come back and talk about mentors. Jessica, how about you? When was your first realization? You've already mentioned it was when you went to college. Did you struggle with where you fit in with your race? And did that happen in college? Absolutely. I went to a very, when I was in school, the kids I went to preschool with were the kids I graduated high school with. It was a small school district within a larger area. But I didn't have much exposure socially except for like camp to other kids. So when I got to college and it was this melting pot and, you know, going to school in New York City, it was, you know, there's people from all around the world and trying to figure out where you fit in and who you could identify with and who would accept you. And also in that same moment, understanding that it wasn't necessarily a new concept because I was in college. But, you know, as you are moving through adolescence and identity formation in those in those years between 12 and 17, right before emerging adulthood, you start to realize that the world is going to identify you in ways that make them feel comfortable. And so you have to then kind of incorporate that into how you identify yourself, but how you approach people for the first time. You know, what are they kind of expecting? I think, especially for those of us who are transracially adopted, who may not have names that match how we look, sometimes there's this sense of, I have to explain myself to this person because they're going to be looking at me like, oh, Siri. Oh, Siri, is that uh, Italian? You know, they're trying to like, they're trying to put you into a but So imagine doing that while you're, you know, having your first experiences away from home in higher education trying to make a name for yourself within the work that you're doing in school and also meeting new people and trying to have as much of a fulfilling college experience as possible, but having to always kind of appease people and make the situation more comfortable by incorporating this assumption that they may be making about you, as well as trying to present yourself as to who you are and who you're becoming. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot to put on anyone. Right. To say nothing of an 18, 19, 20-year-old. Yeah. You said something a minute ago about one of the things you had to figure out was who would accept you. What did you mean by that? I mean, just because I may find a group of people who look like me doesn't mean that I'm accepted into that group. And Mm -hmm. I experienced that. And what it really, again, drove me to do was to not just find my way of putting my feet in the ground and saying, you know what, I do belong here. It was me more saying, I do have work to do. I don't know what these people know about the things that they want me to know about culture. Where's your accent? Where's your language? Why can't you speak Spanish? Why don't you know about Colombian culture? It just inspired me to realize that the world is bigger than I had experienced it. And so I wanted to feel like I could sit in that room. And it didn't just come with saying I was born in this country. I was born in Colombia. I can be in this room. You know, when I used to speak on panels at that time, I would say sometimes it felt like I was false advertising. People would look at me and assume something and I may not be able to have all of this intellectual lived knowledge and experience to back it up. And I didn't want to have that experience. I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was learning. If the expectation from other people is going to be on me from an early age to represent how I look, then I wanted to be able to make sure that I was doing the work for myself to know what this represents outward. And it was, again, not for anyone other than me, but also just understanding that there would always be a public perception of who I was. And I would have to account for that in my own way of identifying myself as that continues to change. 
So what, Jessica, what tools do you wish your parents had, or were your parents even able to have given you the tools? What tools would have been helpful? And maybe another way of asking that is what tools have you developed on your own? You know, I think what my parents gave me laying that foundation of openness and willingness to talk and to be there and to say, what we don't know, we're happy to learn with you and try to teach you. And it gave me this experience of learning about my culture, jumping into college classes, kind of redirecting a major to learn about Latin American studies and take all of these courses and bring it home to them. And they were open and they were willing and they were listening. And that openness, while you're trying to figure out who you are and having all of these other simultaneous experiences, but being able to come home and look at my parents and have them understand that I was becoming somebody else in front of them, mm-hmm. but with them was such mm-hmm. a welcoming and calming feeling. They embraced the new friends that I would bring home. They would embrace, especially all the new food I was bringing home to them. They really were a part of this journey for me. And I think openness was the real key. I think openness is always the key because not only were they teaching me about their own openness, but they were teaching me about how to be open for other people. And Mm -hmm. had I not had that experience, I don't know if I would have even taken on the emotional and mental and spiritual lift of (laughs) trying to connect with my culture if they hadn't laid that groundwork for me. What I hear you say is they weren't threatened by the way that you were growing. Right. Some parents would say, oh, she's growing away from us. Right. But they didn't do that. They said she's growing. She's growing into the person that she's meant to be. And they, it sounds like, embrace that new person that you were becoming. But I think that's also the misconception. I think that when people are growing into themselves, adopted or not, it's not growing away. It's about the foundation that you lay down. If parents, are, you know, my parents never treated me like I was the adopted child. I was their kid. So right. because I never felt a difference, I never felt this this feeling to have to prove them closer or further away at any point. And they knew that they were right there with me. They're, my mom was my mom. My dad is my dad, you know. And, you know, I don't think that they ever had a real worry that I was going to grow in a different direction and not bring them with me. Mm-hmm. I want to circle back to mentors. I loved what Rosie said about finding mentors in literary characters. It is such a creative, when faced with not having a lot of mentors of your race, what a creative way of finding them. Nathan, you said that you went out of your way to find mentors, I assume same race mentors. How did you find them? Not just in high school, but just throughout life. Well, I think the most important thing for me was recognizing who I was first and then looking for people in terms of at least around my identity, in terms of looking for people who were going to be able to speak to those things. So I love playing basketball, still do. And so when I got to high school, I joined the basketball team and there were two older black guys on the team. And so I made a cognizant effort to really just be around them. I didn't specifically ask them, well, what does this mean? Or like, well, how do I do that? Will you be my mentor? You did not ask them that. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It's just about being in the same space as someone with the same identity as me who also had a shared experience. And so I think what that really showed me is that in any space that I'm going into, I can be myself. But then from there, if someone's coming in, I'm going to be able to be there for them in that space. One of the times that stands out to me the most was when I joined my fraternity in college where I joined a social fraternity, people from every race were in the fraternity themselves. And there was an older black guy in the fraternity as well. And he took me to the side during the recruitment process and just said, look, even if you don't join us, there are going to be questions you have about being in a fraternity in this college setting, especially like looking as we do. So if you have any questions, this would be a fantastic time. And so there've been times where people have like, taken me up, pulled me aside. And I've done, I did the same thing for all my years of college as well. Whether or not a person joined our chapter, it was just during the recruitment process, there's going to be questions that you have that I'm guessing other people here aren't going to be able to answer. So this is a time for that. And so I've had like a fantastic opportunity. People give me those chances. The same thing with professors as well. Professors, teachers, really when I find a person who looked like me, but who also had a common interest It was that that I knew could bring us together because in that space, it's not just also black. This is going to be fantastic. It was, I know we're in this space together, centered around something that we both like and enjoy. Because in that case, 
it speaks to them as an individual, not just me seeing another person of color and believing immediately they're going to be the perfect person for me. Mm -hmm. In some ways, that's limiting. Just because of the color of your skin, we will automatically have something in common. We will automatically want to be together. That's stereotyping of another sort. In some capacity and situations, it works like that, where, I mean, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago and didn't really know a lot of people. And then I saw another black guy and was like, this will work. And so just wandered over (laughs) because we had something in common. But then also at the same time, that's not how every situation is going to be. And so in some cases, it's not safety per se, but comfort in the sense of, okay, here's another person who shares this with me. Here's another person who, even if we're incredibly different, has gone through the same or a similar experience in being in this space. But also at the same time, when I'm in a space for a longer period of time, having someone there with that specialized experience that I was able to connect with, that was incredibly beneficial. Mm -hmm. I hope you are enjoying this conversation as much as I am. I'm learning a lot as a transracial adoptive parent. So if you appreciate this content, you'll be happy to hear about 12 free courses we're offering at bit.ly slash JBF support bit.ly slash JBS support. Jockey Bean Family Foundation are sponsoring this library of courses, so check it out today. Okay, I want to ask y'all each a question that's a little awkward, but were you ever, and again, this is probably going to be post high school, maybe not, were you ever embarrassed if your parents showed up in some type of gathering where you weren't already known because it meant that you would have to Either acknowledge that you weren't 100%, the false advertising, as Jessica said, that your parents would bring that to the fore, or that you would have to go through explaining, you know, who are those people? Well, they're my parents and have to go through it. Was that ever embarrassing for you, Rosie? Well, it's so interesting because, yes, the answer is definitely yes. (laughs) Thank you for being honest. (laughs) When I was younger, I had a mom who was pretty involved in my school. I, I went to public school, but like my mom was like volunteering and stuff like that. But like you said, everybody knew my family. So it wasn't like, oh, okay, this is weird. Like everybody was just like, oh, okay, that's her mom, whatever. But then, like you said, when I went to college, you know, you get to start over as a new person with a new identity and you kind of just get to like create yourself how you want yourself to be as an adult. And I had like never experienced that. I never even had a second thought about like doubting what my parents looked like and what I looked like. And then the first time I met my parents at college, they came to visit and we were walking around Target and we bumped into some friends and I wasn't necessarily embarrassed, but I was like, oh yeah, these are my parents. And they gave me this look that was like, oh, and I was like, why are they looking at me? (laughs) Why are they looking at me? This is weird. And then even more so, I will say, I've made this joke. We haven't done it per se, but my dad is a tall white man and I am a young Asian woman. And I always say I couldn't take him to the bar with me. I would love to Mm -hmm. because he would buy my drinks, (laughs) but I can't take him to the bar with me because it's going to be a weird situation where everybody's Mm -hmm. like, that's a young Asian guy with an old white guy. He's not that old. But, you know, it's like situations like that where I actually do have to Mm -hmm. be kind of cognizant about it. And it's like super humorous from like an adoption daughter father lens, but also like super, super awkward and not Mm -hmm. a situation that either of us want to put ourselves in. Yeah. And I I know adopted dads are very aware of that. Jessica, what about you? Were you ever wishing you didn't have the explanation that had to come with or that you felt it challenged your new, your fledgling new identity you were trying to create? No. Truthfully, no. Like I said, I grew up in such a small community as people that like my whole life I had my parents and people who, who we were as a family. And I didn't get to have much time with my parents after my early 20s. So I didn't have those experiences and mm-hmm. even in meeting with people, people that were, they were meeting, like I was mentioning before, knew I was adopted. So I wasn't, you know, there was no, like I felt like I had to explain myself to people who already kind of knew that part of me and knew about that. You didn't have the opportunity in a new place to, because you're right, when you're, where you're growing up, you would not. Right. And even when I got right. to college, again, like, you know, those yeah. people who were coming into my life at that time was the reflection of the people that I had found 
But again, who had known that that was my backstory. So they weren't surprised when they see these two white people in my house or like introducing themselves as my parents. Yeah, or showing up. Nathan, what about you? Honestly, the same as Jessica, not really. I mean, mm-hmm. my white parents picked to adopt a black child. So that's their own fault if they put themselves in those situations. <laughs> but also, I honestly just trusted my parents that in any situation they were going to be in, they 100% have thought this through as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm very open about being adopted. It's something that I just kind of, if you've known me for about 10 minutes, you'll probably hear me allude to it in some capacity. Just not even though it's like a prep thing, just as kind of like a, this is my thing in like the situations where I am. But if people have questions, they can ask. But I think the human experience, especially through the advent of the internet and being able to see like all the different facets of human life around the world, I think that when I say these are my parents, if people have follow-up questions, they can ask them. But otherwise, I think people just kind of go, okay, and then just kind of just roll with it. You know, that may be a way that our society is changing in a good way, more accepting, more options. I want to come back to something that Jessica talked about at the beginning and what she's made her life work as well, and that is finding community amongst other adoptees and specifically probably transracial adoptees. Jessica, when you were first talking, I picked up that that was something that was very important for your development. Now now that is what you do is create space for adopted people. So let's talk a little about, we've talked about racial identity, but Nathan just alluded to this as well. That is one identity, but the other identity is the identity of an adopted person. And then a sub-identity to that, I guess, would be that of a transracially adopted person. Where does that identity fit in overall identity formation? And I'll start with you, Jessica. Yeah. I mean, finding community is a powerful thing, regardless of where you're finding that community or in what you're looking for that community. And for people who are adopted, you know, we have a lot of experiences and thoughts and feelings and moments in life that we may go through on our own. You know, as much as we could have had, like I had parents who created a very open space, there are still things that I held back from them because I wanted to protect them just as much as parents want to protect us. and. So when I had the opportunity to become one of the founding mentors in our mentorship program at the organization that I work, it was a very powerful idea to be able to give back and kind of heal the younger versions of myself by being that example for other people, by giving that space, creating those spaces to have difficult conversations, find that commonality in younger people who are looking to connect with one another and who are looking to have that feeling of aloneness be a little bit less. And I think that as a transracially adopted person, finding other transracially adopted people has been huge for me. But what I also realized in talking to as many adoptees as I have is that we could be from anywhere in the world. But we all share the same, this one like very deeply rooted experience and it kind of levels the playing field in so many ways. So the transracial piece of it is important, but because there's a lot of other layers, just like you said, there's a lot of other things to kind of consider. But at the same time, it doesn't make me feel that much more different from a domestically adopted person who may not mm-hmm. have some of the challenges of being disconnected from birth country or or culture or Mm -hmm. or language. Commonality being that you are adopted is is strong. Yeah. And it's impactful. I mean, it's to be in a space where we're able to have conversations and hear from one another and just listen. It's, you know, it is a very big and life-changing experience. And I've got to do it for Mm -hmm. 20 years now and continue to. And it's been, yeah, it's been really Mm -hmm. wonderful. All right, now we're going to do a round robin of tips because most of the audience who will be listening for this is going to be parents. So they would like to hear tips. What would you tell parents who are either considering transracial adoption or in the midst of already raising a transracially adopted child? Rosie, we'll start with you. Yeah, so step one, which if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already doing, is to listen to adoptees. So listen to their stories and their experiences and their thoughts, even if you don't agree, just so you know they exist. 
and you know how you can work through how to respond to those personally. Because I don't think you want your first experience coming up with like a really hard topic. You don't want your first time you ever hear about it to be with your kid when they're asking you about it. Yeah. So yeah, that would be my first thing. But more importantly, or I guess not more importantly, but for me, like something that's more comes to my forefront is look into the history of adoption in your home country and the country you've adopted from if it's international, as well as the history of your child's racial and ethnic group in the country that you live in, because there are so many discrepancies just honestly, in today's politics about different people, groups and stuff like that. And like so many of these problems maybe couldn't be solved, but at least could be understood better if everybody just knew their history. So yeah, that's what I would say about that. All right, Nathan, you're up. Tips for parents. I think the biggest ones that come to mind are first and foremost, if you're choosing to adopt transracially, that is a larger choice than choosing to adopt. Because in choosing to adopt transracially, what that means is that you are going to introduce many different cultural experiences that you may not have had. And so keeping that in mind and coming at it from that perspective, not, oh, I want to adopt a kid. Like really overall, it can't be focused on you. Mm -hmm. It has to be focused on the child and their well-being. And if you may not be the best to give them that well-being, that's not a reflection of you as an individual. That doesn't mean you're not going to be a fantastic parent someday. It's just, I'm bad at math. I'm not an engineer. Mm -hmm. A leads to B. And so like, if you're not equipped and if you don't believe that you're ready for this challenge, then I would recommend looking at what you are ready for because this is someone's life and it's really important. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be so many fantastic people out there who your love can go to. But if you don't feel fully equipped to do this, it's not a bad thing to recognize that. Mm How -hmm. would also follow up with that is by saying, educate yourself, but also it's completely fine to say, I don't know, let's figure it out. There's going to be so many wonderful, fantastic people out there. Again, I'm not an engineer. If I need help with engineering, I call an engineer. I'm not going to be able to do everything, but it goes back to that like proverb. It takes a village to raise a child. And especially in this case, it takes a village because some people are going to have more information. Some people are going to have a lot more information, but also at the same time, you bring things to the table that only you can bring. And those are absolutely fantastic and lean into those, but your child's going to be on an adventure. They're going to have questions and making sure that from the beginning, they know who they are, they know their different aspects, and you know that them being different from you does not make them any less loved, any less valued as an individual. And also look into very specific, like skin and hair care, mm -hmm. like skin and hair care essential. I did not understand the kinds of things that my skin and hair needed in comparison to my parents. And then really it was after college when I started taking care of myself properly and the quality of life that has emerged mm -hmm. from me doing proper skincare has been off the charts. And so don't force a mentor, always be there to answer questions or say you don't know, and know you're ready for the challenge. Mm -hmm. It is a challenge, but more than anything else, it's worth it. Excellent. Okay, Jessica, you get the last word. Tips for parents. I echo what my fellow adoptees have said, but I would also say, you know, it's very important to find community, find your community, find other adoptive parents, understand the importance of incorporating identity and culture into your family, even lean into your own culture and your own experiences. It will make your family richer. And, you know, adoptees, adopted people are not a monolith. We are all different. We have different experiences and different stories, and we have different interests in our own connection to our adoption story. And the ebbs and flows are there; they're real. And you know, creating that foundation of openness and willingness, I think, makes a very big difference in helping your child become who they're going to become, while you're also becoming the parents who are going to continually support them. It doesn't these these years of education don't just exist when your kids are in school. 
there's a lifelong journey of education as, as you know, what it's like to be a parent and what it means to be a parent of a transracially or like just a, an adopted child. So I encourage everyone to find their community, find strength in numbers, and to just know that there's also sometimes spaces that they may not be able to be in to best care for their kids by finding community for their children. So there's a lot of wonderful opportunities out there for families, and I encourage everyone to look into those for themselves. Thank you so much, Jessica Lucieri, Rosie Jones, and Nathan Faust for being with us today to share your wisdom with adoptive parents. We truly appreciate it. Creating a Family is a nonprofit. We are dependent upon the support of organizations who believe in our mission and believe in putting their money behind their actual belief. One such organization is Children's House International. They are a Hague-accredited international adoption agency currently placing children from 14 countries with families throughout the U.S. Children's House also provides consulting for international surrogacy. So check it out at Children's House International.